0: You can make HR policies, you can make HR processes, or you could do it at a societal level with laws. But if you don't deal with the humans and the emotions inside of that, lots of stuff isn't gonna change. And that people have to want to know how to. I guess I just think, maybe this is my upbringing of being brought up to believe that I could have a voice, is I just think everyone should have a voice and everyone should be heard. No one is entirely right. You know, everyone just sees a part of it was really hard for people to be able to listen because they were so restricted by rules or regulations that were self-imposed or by their institution that they, they stymied people's ability to have their
1: voice. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and the life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you To lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. Today I have a very good friend who I just gave a heart attack to by asking her to introduce herself. You know how to eat people on their toes and switch things up. And that goes for my guest as well. So... Alice Evans, can you introduce yourself? Who who are you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you really, really did give me a heart attack. Uh, it's a good job I don't have a pacemaker in me. Uh, who am I? I am a Brit who lives in Amsterdam. I am a parent of two, teenager, almost teenager, and I like to think I'm really funny, <laughs> and I'm not. But I do do improv. And I, in my in my working life, I am a team coach and work around complexity and systems. And in the past, I've been a deputy chief exec of a charitable foundation. I'm also currently a visiting fellow at the Oxford University's. Skull center for social innovation but most importantly i'm trying to
1: enjoy life and that is that was brilliant that was brilliant it's very nice short summary leading what makes you what's the, the things that are important to you um i would add she's also the upcoming host of the amazing podcast pleasuring myself that we're going to talk about today you know you know and i know your wife wants to think you are in that what don't worry right that. We'll, we'll, delve, we'll delve into the title but she's she's the upcoming host of that amazing 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 podcast and even though she downplayed it she is a highly sought-after exec coach facilitator, working with teams across all levels frontline exec middle management uh absolutely amazing individual who knows a lot and has been involved in so much and with that in mind um if I'm only two questions I consistently ask on the podcast, one is around your childhood. And I'm going to go for what was a young Alice like at nine years old?
0: So I have two halves of who Alice was like at nine years old because my mum died when I was nine. Um, but if I go from slightly before that, I think I was a slightly precocious 9 year, uh, eight, seven, eight-year-old because... My mum comes from a lineage of really, really amazing women. So, we discovered recently that my great great aunt was a explorer and she was, I think, the first white woman to climb Kilimanjaro. So, and my granny was like the first woman to become a permanent undersecretary at the Treasury. So, I had these like really high powered women, but they were all part of my life. So, we'd go to my granny's house and I'd be playing like boggle or scrabble with. Uh, Cambridge professors (laughs) but I wouldn't know they were Cambridge professors and they would just treat me as adults so I was incredibly used to being treated as an adult by people so I had this expectation that I could have a voice and that I would be listened to and I'd be spoken to and I was having a lovely time so my childhood was full of I don't know I think it was quite a unique childhood in that way and then my mum died and so we just changed. From when i was nine onwards because we just adjusted to living with my dad and three children and it, yeah but there was loads of love in my childhood loads of love how did it affect me i really tried to think about this i think most people's normalness is like debility that so when change happens to them it, it can be feeling really frightening or it can feel really different whereas i think because your pattern can get formed when you're between eight and ten I think one of the things that happened to me was that mm. living with uncertainty, living with complexity, just became my normal. So it feels very, very normal to me to live like that. So I think, I think how it changed me is, I, like, I, I grew up really quickly. I just became an adult, and I was quite a wild teenager. But I, I had, I think that's how it changed me. I think it gave me the sense a really good schooling in how to live with uncertainty and complexity,
1: they say so you' were a wild teenager, how wild was wild?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a moment where I could have really gone <laughs> the wrong way <laughs> um but i didn't i didn't i i I did have my first clubbing experience when I was thirteen, and I did lots of stuff like that, but uh. I was actually then a very sensible teenager in my later years. I think I just compacted it into my early teenager. <laughs> I did. I did. I made a choice. It was like if I carry on down this route, it's not gonna end well. And actually I don't wanna do that to my dad. So I made a choice to It's still a very like and...
1: logical choice, I do life know, because a lot of teenagers aren't thinking that way. It's like, I'm young, I'm gonna experience myself, I'm gonna live life. So there must have been something there for you to actually just stop and think and be like actually let me go down a different path
0: yeah yeah i think this is what i mean about how i grew up really quickly so i think in many senses i skipped lots of the aspects that you might do as a teenager because i had to take a lot of responsibility for myself i had to look after myself i mean my dad was amazing absolutely amazing but he was still he was still coping with his own grief so i you had to just grow up and and was stuff, and my younger brother was four when my mum died. So, so he, you know, we were just we were just in transition. I think through
1: that time, you grow up sensible teenager. What was the
0: next? <laughs> we're a Just
1: call it what it is.
0: I like it being sensible. I really like dancing. <laughs>
1: I was gonna say. Then, what was it around as you were growing up and going through that? Then, like before we, we talked, you talking about like teaching months at 18 English. Like, was there a plan that you had from a young age? Because sometimes kids were like, oh, I want to do X, Y, Z when I grow up. Did you ever have any of those plans for yourself or was it consistently changing and just growing the flow?
0: I was going to be an international commercial lawyer at one point, Chopin.
1: That's so, you know, know. that's so out there. (laughs) (laughs) Actually. It's (laughs) It's <laughs> not, it's, well think about it again, it's not too far from some of what you did with lancelot Chase, in, in, a, in a sense, in a sense, if I was to kind of squint really really hard and think about it, but that is, no, I don't I don't see that.
0: I don't, I couldn't, I would have been a terrible, a terrible lawyer, because you have to have attention to detail. And I love looking at the big picture and seeing how everything knits together. Like, it, it just wouldn't have worked. Anyway, I was going to be that. So then I did work experience and I did work experience with a barrister and uh, I got asked out by the person that was <laughs> prosecuting at one point.
1: Wait, did you say yes?
0: I said, no, of course I did. I was like, what? Why are you asking me that? Anyway, so so then I was like, okay, I want to go, I really want to go into international development. Like, Like, the love of travel was like, was the driving factor between the international commercial lawyer. I was never going to be a good commercial liar. And I went away to India, uh, you know, as a nice 18-year-old white girl to go and change the world in India and got there and realised I was incredibly arrogant. I couldn't believe I thought that. But while we were there, so that career path ended straight away. But while we were there, I met a whole load of Thai monks and they were all over in India doing their PhDs and, we introduced ourselves and then we went every day to go and help them with their PhDs and teach them English and it was a lot of fun.
1: When you went across initially and how long did it take for you to realise that to your point like that was a very arrogant way of thinking when you went in there what was it that really changed your mind?
0: The first thing that they said was you know you'll be going to an area that you know there's poverty and my definition of poverty was I can't remember, but it was something really naive. And then I got there and there was no glass in the windows and I was, and the floor was with mud. It was kind of, you know, like compacted soil as to how some of the stuff was done. I, oh my God, I was so naive and so so UK centric and, and like Global North centric in my viewpoint. This, How could I possibly have believed that? And then I got there and then we messed up because we treated everyone as equal. And there's a cost system, and we didn't realise that cost system. And, and it was just, there were all these moments where I was just like, I can't, I cannot believe that I had this naivety and this belief that I could do this. So I we stuck it out for four months, and then I was just, uh, I was just like, no, that's it, that career is over. I'm not going to do that. How can I possibly go and tell another country how to live their life when the UK has so much inequality and poverty, of its own like you can't do that so that was that was it which was you know it was really good to learn that early on yeah i guess i
1: was having this conversation recently so i was interested to hear your take when you think about some of what shaped your your mindset your mentality especially at that young age around how you saw poverty inequality and different things like that do you think a lot of that comes down to from other images and, and tv a lot of the uh, aid appeal, all that kind of stuff that we see a lot on UK TVs, was that what that shaped that or was that shaping just society in general?
0: Shaped my views on it. Well, I think my parents I think my parents were really clear that that I I had I, I had certain aspects of privilege and that part of my duty in having some of those aspects of privilege was to was to use them. For other people, and to use them to to lift up others alongside it, not to use it to make my... To to yeah, they were just really clear that it was about not just my responsibility to myself, but my responsibility to society. And we, they were part of a Whole Food cooperative, so we would buy Whole Food, and we had CMD stickers at home, so it was just it was just really part of. The warp and weft, I think, of our family, that that's how you lived. And I think that just really shaped it. It really shaped it. I went to private school till I was 16 and and then I withdrew because I was like, things aren't going to change if parents like myself, like mine or my dad, don't get involved in the education system because we're opting out of something. So I went back to state school. I, I, I don't know how it shaped it, but it, there was obviously really strong upbringing from my parents.
1: It's interesting when I hear you, you say that when you're making that decision at 16 and then I look at the path he kind of went down, which is around doing a work around homelessness um, and policy for years before he obviously went um into Land Kelly Chase. Like there's something around from that young Alice, that thread has kind of still the way through of around like equity, inequality, and fighting for that—that's really, really strong in the way that you kind of see, like.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I, I think it is, and I—I I, I think it—it, it, yeah, yeah. I—I I don't know how what else to say, but yes. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was going to go into frontline homelessness, but then I realised I was terrible with—I—I I, I was working in a hostel, and uh. This guy had an epileptic fit and fell on the floor and smashed his head open, <laughs> and had blood coming out of his head. And I was on the walkie-talkie, having to get all this stuff sort of done. I just said, "I just don't have the skills for this. I can't do that." But what I can do is really articulate stuff. So I went into policy and research and around that because because that's what I could do.
1: What some of the learnings and lessons that you you took away from. That time and period, including some of the work you did at Black like Kelly Chase. <laughs> that's nice. No don't, I don't ask small questions. Straight. That's the one we're here for, you <laughs> know. I'm going to ask the
0: big questions. <laughs> that's that's, that's <laughs> what I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to just buy time and space. I think one of the things I took away from it was that that when you work in social justice or you're working in this stuff, there's like there's a good and a bad person, and like. And actually, I don't, I don't know if I believe that anymore. I think what I learned is that everyone is trying to do a good job and, and they're trying to do their best. But sometimes they might not be doing it skillfully. The institutions or the structures they're in might be limiting them. So how do you, how do you get into conversation and dialogue? How do you bring different groups together? How do you help people? To have the conversations they need to have that they find difficult so that you can start to to build and learn together because we're all interconnected and we're all interdependent so how do you do that i think was one of the key things i took away from it the other was that you can do all of this processes you can do all of these changes in in how i don't know even how an organization runs you can make hr policies you can make hr processes or you could do it a a society on level with laws but if you don't deal with the humans and the emotions inside of that lots of stuff isn't going to change and that people have to want to know how to and feel free to like they need an authorising environment to make a change so I think that was something else I took from it I think I have a very positive view on people <laughs> like, like they will they just want to be loved i think most people i guess i just think maybe this is my upbringing of being brought up to believe that i could have a voice is i just think everyone should have a voice and everyone should be heard no one is entirely right you know everyone just sees a part of it i think i think across all of society people don't own their rank they don't own the position they hold and and one of the things i realize especially as a funder is if you don't own your position and your rank as a funder, then you are partly not allowing other people to own their rank because because they can't then be in true relationship with you. And then you can't truly collaborate. So if you're always apologetic or embarrassed about it, then they almost have to become embarrassed and apologetic about the fact that they're asking for money to do the work they're doing. Like It becomes a really paternalistic approach to and That just doesn't make sense to me when you think, well, everyone's trying to do the best they can.
1: Well, do you think part of the reason why some people might, if I was to flip it the other way around, so in my basic example, some of the people you work with when you uh, do some of the work in, in homeless projects or even some of the people you've seen coming across you to you in like 30, they don't always recognise the, the power or think they have any whatsoever. Um, I mean, if I was to flip it around a completely different lens, even as, as a black person, sometimes in the UK, is like getting people to think, no, you do have power, you do have status, you do have, like, it's, it's not easy to do because of the system, the it's mass race, and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's an element to it. But it's, even to your point, um, you mentioned earlier on, there is a lens and review that people still have of other races, other communities. Um, and as like, oh, I always see someone homeless in the street, I'd straightway go to an assumption. Those different things are at play. And therefore you can, you can easily subjugate yourself and rather than thinking, I do have power in the, in this, how have you, have you seen that? And how do you, I guess, help to shape other people's views and perspective of how they view themselves?
0: <laughs> All the time. <laughs> I see it all the time, and, 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 and like you can see it in the charitable sector, but I think you see it in businesses. You see it across all of it. Like everyone has a story that they they don't have power, that they don't have this. And I think when you are, you know, when you're a black man or when you're a black woman, lesbian, you know, these things stack up to work against you, and yet you hold power. Like the the one of the things that one charity who we used to fund really taught me was that one of the things they had was that the people who didn't engage in their services were using their power to give them a message because they weren't engaging in the services so it was their job to think how do I listen to that to go out and do it and I was like I had never thought about it that way that people were exercising their power by removing so how do you then have the ability to listen the thing I noticed was it was really hard for people to be able to listen because they were so restricted by rules or regulations that were self-imposed or by their institution that they they stymied people's ability to have their voice. So the thing I was like as a funder was, okay, so how do I, how do I create platforms so we can lift people up? How do we create those opportunities for people to have voice? So we gave our Twitter account over to people every Friday so they could tweet from our account because as a funder you had an air of respectability. So you're like, how do we lend that respectability to someone else so you can do it? Because because I yeah. I think it's really hard as an individual, but collectively you can do so much more. How's
1: it's that? Power teamwork. What's the power? But power but it goes <laughs> back into your point around rather than thinking really, really narrow, thinking really broad. Like, that's systematic thinking that you you're known for and you're good at doing. That is it, that's thinking outside the box. I think a lot of times people just think in small confinement, like, what, what is it we can do? How can we actually listen? What's going on at play here? Why are people aren't tapping into that? At times when there's like, there's the ignorance like, all oh, right, it's really, good have not using that I mean it. That's something in minute, like, we've provided it, but I actually stop and be like, no, what is going on here? Why are people not tapping into it? What can we create? That's that's so different. That's a, a systematic thinking.
0: It is. I. Don't... I think also, like, there were some painful moments for me, you know, like, painful where the way we'd structured some of the funding as a funder, we were implicitly racist in that because we weren't structuring it in a way that people who were running groups that were serving black black communities, they weren't getting the funding because they didn't meet with the criteria. But... So we had to really look at what we were doing and go, oh my God, we we seriously made a mistake there and how do we then put that right? Or there was another point where we were doing this work in in an area and I, I invited another funder along, but I didn't check with the rest of the group whether they wanted that. And they were like, Alice, what have you done? We don't want that funder and you should have asked us. Oh my God, you're so right. I'm so sorry, let me go and put that right. We made some serious mistakes and I think, how to really own that and go okay that was a mistake let's change it was it was really important and then how do we make how do we repair that afterwards
1: would you say you're very you have a high level of self-awareness
0: <laughs> depends on which day you get me <laughs> i think they'll have a high level of self-awareness And the thing I've noticed is that if I don't feel that I'm in a safe environment, it's difficult for me to... You know, when you can feel trapped, then you can feel constrained, and then it's difficult to be the best of who I want to be. Uh, I mean, I suppose my first instinct might be to lash out, and then it'd be like, oh God, what have I just done? The thing I know is that if I'm not continually learning, then I can become... If you go back to, I need uncertainty and complexity and change. If I'm not continually learning, then I can become very staid. And that's where the issues arise. So the way I deal with it is to to continually be in reflection and think about stuff, because that's what I need.
1: Your need for uncertainty, complexity, and change, making you live your life, your first 40 years in particular, in very, very interesting... Um, personally inspiring kind of way if you haven't already can you please follow the podcast it really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it an apple podcast if you click the three dots in the top right of your app Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. I want to talk about the why behind that. Um, if you you're, if you're able to talk about that, like, what was it around the first four years of your life that you approached things in a very, very different way?
0: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to have so much fun in the first 40 years of my life. But I think I also lived every day as if I could die because written on the front of my medical notes was... She has a family history of cancer. Like, check it out. And I can't quite remember, but it was scrawled across the front of my medical notes. So every time I went to the doctor, they would say, you know you've got a family history of cancer. And I'm like, yes, I know I've got a family history of cancer. You know you could get cancer. Yes, I know I could get cancer. My mum died at 40. My aunt died at 36. My granny died and she was in her 60s. Other members of my family had died. So I was part of a research programme about... Hereditary cancer, and it was before they could test whether or not you had cancer and whether you had the gene or not. So I just assumed I would get cancer, and if I got cancer, I would die. Like, that's just that was kind of a core assumption I lived by. So, well, I might as well just enjoy it then. (laughs) Like, I might as well just enjoy what's gonna happen. And I'm 45 and I'm alive, so my assumption was wrong.
1: Well, your approach, your approach—I don't think your but, approach was bad, because you know, that's still like, you know what? I'm just gonna enjoy life, wherever comes comes. But I'm just gonna go for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I am. Um, I have. I just immensely enjoyed life, and then I was given the privilege of being tested for the cancer gene. I had it. I have the cancer gene. And I had operations, and now I've dramatically reduced my li- risk. So. I, I figure that I've just been given some great gifts by life.
1: I think that speaks into the character as well, because there are other people who's like, oh, look, he is super, super cautious and super, super careful um, about how I approach things. And I was like, okay, me just live it. Live it to the max, enjoy it, move, and have a great life and all that value ever comes and I gave it all and you've you've done that and there's so much more to come. And speaking of so much more to come, let's talk about pleasure in myself.
0: Honestly, that title makes me laugh every single time I say it. So if I just explain it, so when I turned 40 and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to live for another 80 years, I started to live a really safe life. And it was really interesting. I started to live a really safe life. So And then I was like, oh, this is just not me. And we moved. And, and then I left Kelly and I went, became assistance coach and a team coach and executive coach for all time which i love but that that was all in service of how to nudge and how to live and mouth fully and deeply every day because that's what i decided i really wanted to get back to and i wanted to get back to being a bit more reckless because i quite nudge taking risks and and over the course of that last year i was really looking into well what does it mean to really have pleasure and joy in my life daily what does it mean to laugh um and and then as i was reflecting on the year i realized a whole load of women were sort of sending me messages about you know oh i've got this i'm doing this now and i thought well that's really interesting but why are you telling me <laughs> And I was like, that's delightful I'm like, alice you asked me a question you asked me this question back in the summer what do you do for yourself that is entirely for yourself without any other purpose than just enjoying it and having pleasure and fun and it really made me stop in my tracks it really made me think and since then I've done this 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 and I was like oh my god that's amazing and I was like I'm still learning how to have pleasure and joy in my life I don't know how to do this this is like the worth ethic is strong inside me to to, to serve other people. So what would it look like? I know, I'm just gonna go and interview a whole load of women about what brings them pleasure and joy. And I'm gonna call my podcast Pleasuring Myself. <laughs> uh and I I will learn. So through every conversation I have with someone I'm gonna learn about what it means to have pleasure and joy. And and I yeah, that's where it came from. What
1: well, uh, are I know you say you're still you're still figuring it out, but I'm going to ask you, what are your top five ways of pleasuring yourself? <laughs> that
0: just sounds so sexual, doesn't it? What <laughs> someone says? Well, it's, it's, it's top a, five ways of pleasuring myself. It's a good
1: thing i you know, because I just feel
0: like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, what well, just reuses me so much. Um, I realise that... Uh, Like serendipitous moments really, really, really bring me pleasure and joy. Like when I bump into someone on the street and talk to them or when something just happens really spontaneously, I just love that. I also love the sound of rain on the rooftop. Like that sound of rain when I'm warm and inside is just gorgeous. And I love the sun on my face and I just love love laughing I really love laughing and I love humour I love when people are really funny and just really enjoying that I love I sh- I mean I just love thinking about food making food I really love eating food I, I I love a lot of stuff a lot of stuff brings me pleasure and joy I think
1: the list is so, I think a lot of times like, you, you go to these big, wild things. But yeah, this is very simple. And the reason why that's, I think that's when that's important is actually there are a lot of, there's sometimes the smallest, simplest things that can bring us joy and pleasure. And we tend to go for the big extraordinary. Actually, you know what? Those are fleeting moments. The things that really, really stay with us are some of those small things that you just kind of described.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so. One of the things that I'm asking people for this podcast, and I will ask them, is like, what are fifty things that you enjoy every single day to do? Oh, like fifty really is a really long list. It's a really long list, and what I've discovered is, by the time you get to the end of the list, is when they really discover something new. So it really, really makes them think. And uh, and fifty is deliberate because you really. It's a real reframe of how you look at rest of your everyday things. So you just look at it and go, oh, wow, I actually really enjoy doing that, but I don't pause. <laughs> I think I enjoy doing that. I just get on with it.
1: There's a power to pause and reflection, to really take it, take it in. Oh, interesting. It's been in it the UK for the last couple of days. And last yesterday evening, I finished and went into the house. My wife was in the snow that we're looking outside. And if there was like nine o'clock at night or something like that, it was I think because of the snow, it looked very very bright outside, and we just chilled there for like half an hour, just like holding hands, just chilling, and it was so peaceful. It was one of those moments that I was just, the felt really really stable. You we know, was like, actually, we didn't we didn't do anything. We just chilled. I think we were talking, holding hands. She fell asleep eventually, but it was such a nice beautiful moments looking out at the white snow looking out at the world that looked like it was still bright and sunny when it wasn't it was some of the simple things like that just bring you so much joy and peace yeah well
0: what, what was it about it was it being with your wife was it looking out of the snow being in the warm looking out of the snow what was it that really it gave you the pleasure
1: both both being being with my wife um looking out and it just looked, it looked so beautiful outside. It looked so tranquil outside. Um, and it just give you a moment of where your mind wasn't racing, a lot different things, you were able just to just calm it down and be in the moment and be present in that moment. And I think a lot of times we, be some of the lives that we live with going from head to bed to do this. So your point around not slowing down reflecting that for me was just was just pause and just be and that's what it was that was really really powerful and um, really joyful and give you a sense of gratitude that you can actually even do that um that's what it was
0: I'm, I'm actually sitting there with you, I hope you don't mind right now in my mind <laughs> just lifting out over this now and just I don't know. It just, it just makes it makes your body feel calm. Some of these moments, like it, it really gets you back. I think to some of your body. Style.
1: Yeah, and it's um a lot of work that we both do. Such as where you go and you're talking to some of the f- high performing senior leaders, and you're like, just we're gonna slow things down for a bit. They're all like, what? How's that gonna help you? You know what I'm going through? I'm taking with this, do this, 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 and it's a make This is about this. We're just gonna slow things down. It's like how and then you have something you do something with them around their bodies and connecting and they feel so transformed after a, a short period of time of just being and being present it doesn't get a lot of a lot of um props that it needs to you it's not talked about a lot more to be honest it needs to be talked about a lot more
0: <laughs> i know i think it does and i think i think it's really hard because you've got so much when you're all really like captured by this great great busyness which can feel so real when you're in it that your adrenaline is just coursing through your body. I don't know and all the parasympathetic or the sympathetic I never quite can remember the words but um, then when you stop it takes quite a time for your body to restabilise I think as well.
1: Is that something of the complex and chaotic world we live in where we've been so programmed to consistent with being of the goal that slowing down and, and is hard for us to do? Or is it just... Is that the story that we tell ourselves to make us feel better about not doing it?
0: I don't know. I, I, how would you answer that question? Basically, best on your vast
1: experience. You know, what, what have you seen? What's your opinion at this? That's what we want to know. You know? <laughs> I think...
0: I think we are driven by a desire to be productive and to produce and to to achieve and to move to the next thing. And I think it's it's really driven by this kind of survival instinct. And and I think it can be really scary to slow down. Like when I resigned and left and I knew I was gonna do all this stuff, I was having to go, am I gonna be okay with that? Will I will I earn? Will I survive? Will that be okay? And I, and, and I had to really look at, well, what does it mean to life rather than to work? And I think it's really hard because the whole culture is in the, well, I mean, I don't think every culture is like that, but the, most of the cultures that you live in in Western Europe are like that, of real productivity. How would
1: that decision take you to, make I mean, decision to like quit Kelly? move and, and do everything else because to the point he's making right now that's that's not easy like to think about to life rather than everything else like it so it's like well, i've got bills to pay i've got kids to look after all the if that come after that and then to go to you know what let's what does it mean to, to life that's a complete mindset shift that is not easy to to land at. So what was that process like for you? How long did it take you? What were some of the other objections or obstacles or fears that came to mind? It? And then how did you kind of work on that?
0: I mean, it was terrifying. terrifying. It was truly terrifying. It's like, what am I doing? I'm leaving a stable job that I love. And I'm at that point, I was the only breadwinner. So I was like, oh my God, this is the most reckless thing I think I've ever done. And then I was like, wait, maybe it's more reckless to stay in something that you think it's time to move on from. Like there were a load of really good reasons for me to resign and to leave. And, um, and so I was like, I'm just going to have to trust. I'm going to have to trust this is going to be okay. And it's been more than okay. It's been amazing. Um, but it, it took a really... I did this incredible workshop called the Money Workshop it is about the money and the life path. And I think it was just the final step I needed to feel the confidence to, to find my mm-hmm. own way. And then I just had to be really generous with myself over this past 18 months of stumbling and making mistakes and going, oh, you got a bit too caught up back again in this hustle and stuff. And that's not, that's not the life you want. doesn't mean it's a wrong life for other people. It's just not the life I want right now. I wanna be able to do my improv comedy, I wanna be able
1: to
0: have leisurely mansions. I wanna be spacious.
1: Yeah. I'm curious from that do you then have a checklist that you're constantly going back to where you're like, Am I am I life in, am I doing this and this and this? Or am I falling back into let's call it the rat race? Or is that just an internal checklist that you have?
0: I have a I have a joy barometer dope, which I did not quite realise that I've Joy Barometer <laughs> I'm like, is this gonna bring me pleasure and joy? <laughs> uh, do I have to do this? Okay, if I have to do this, how do I do this in a way that brings me pleasure and joy? What well, what does that mean I'm not gonna do? How do I do this? And if it feels really like efforting, like am I really trying too hard for this, then Maybe that's not right. Maybe that'll come back in a few years and it'll be ready for that. So I do have certain things. And I was like, oh, I'm feeling really like this again. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. I've come off compass. So I I think I've finally understood what it means to live with a purpose because my purpose is pleasure and joy, (laughs) which feels such a luxurious purpose to have. But I think there is a form of activism in it as well. Because I think it's quite countercultural to, to how you should live. I think lots of stuff is sold to people on people's pain or hurt. And to say, no, I'm going to foreground the other side of that, Just it just feels, it feels like activism. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown has written a book, Pleasure is Activism. And I was like, oh, yes, maybe it is. Maybe it's just a different form of this stuff that I've always thought about.
1: Different approach, depending on living, but living for you and your family rather than living for what the world thinks that you should. It should be you should do how you should act. Um, well, how about that to put it like leaning from the inside rather than from the outside? In, is is a format to them because it's very very radical. So it's a very different approach, which is good. I think we need we need more we need more radical thinking and radical approaches because. Things definitely working right now, with everyone going in the status quo, so I'm definitely here for it. And you mentioned improv. Why? Why? Imp- improv is, uh, honestly, one of the hardest, <laughs> one of the hardest things ever. There ain't no,
0: there ain't no pleasure and joy in improv. but i tell you why, because I went to do it, because I realised I'd forgotten how to laugh. Like coming out of the pandemic you know everyone is really stressed they're really tired they're all of this stuff and i'd realized i'd forgotten how to laugh like truly belly laugh laugh it's like okay and then my friend said why don't you come to improv and i went well i've always thought about improv but it terrifies me so let me just do it so i did it and i was literally i literally froze for the first five six seven eight nine ten <laughs> sessions but when it wasn't me, I was just there and I wasn't worrying about how I learned, I just laughed. I laughed so much and every session I left I felt really good. And it was teaching me playfulness, creativity, how to really, like, really let yourself think in a way that wasn't. And I realised I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm never going to be, a, it's never going to be a profession. I have performed live, but no one would ever knows that I perform live because this is entirely for me. It's for no one else. No one else is ever going to need to have any judgment about it because I'm up there doing it because it really brings me pleasure and joy. So that's why. But it, if I pause to think about it, it terrifies me. And I really enjoy it. And
1: I... When I pause and think about it, it just terrifies me. So I am with you on that one, but I love the way when you say like, when I stop thinking about it, when you stop thinking about yourself, you can really just connect with yourself in a sense and really, really laugh. And that self-conscious look and feel just goes away, goes out the window. But it took you 10, you say it took you what, five to 10 sessions just to be able to do that just let go of that. And you kept on going.
0: Yeah, because... It didn't. Apart after the first couple, I was like, "Oh, this has got something for me. This, this is this is giving me something." I mean, I'm terrible at it. I'll never make a career in it. But honestly, when do you, as an adult, get to be truly silly and truly, truly silly with other people in service of being silly, like silly, funny, silly, not? ridiculously silly, and everyone who you're doing improv with is wanting you to be the best. Like they literally, that's what you're taught is you go up there and you yes and your partner because you want to build on everything. You build, you build, you build. So you're doing it in community with other people who want you to succeed, which is amazing. No, am I selling I'm, it to you?
1: I'm I'm cheering you on. <laughs> I'm clapping for you. I'm like yes, Alice, you go for it. <laughs> As for me, <laughs> no. But to be honest, like, I'm thinking about it. I've learned, actually, there's something about that. Or... I ask myself the question, like, when was the last time you just completely let go and really, really didn't didn't care? And then I think that was when I'm in my family. When I'm with them, when I'm with my wife, when I'm with my kids and stuff like that. Like, long as i like, you really are ridiculously, you're so silly. And it's like, but no one ever sees that side of you apart from like a couple of my friends. But that's the only time I just completely let go. There's no there's no judgment, there's no there's nothing. But outside of that, no. It's just it's still there's still uh I guess there's an armour in a sense that you use to protect yourself. But then I guess the armor you can protect yourself in on one hand, they can also limit you in the other hand. So all the like just to have that being in that environment, be completely free, and just let go of everything. I don't know. It is, it is fascinating, but I don't think I'm there yet. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that enlightened just yet.
0: <laughs> For the whole of my life, thought, how do I become this person who doesn't just share, <laughs> who is mysterious, who is professional, who has this armor? And I'm like, I just, I don't know if I can manage that. And I had to really make my peace with it a few years ago, and I went down yeah just gonna be this like I'll oh, I just am I can't I can't change this bit I just have to like it <laughs> I would love to, I would love to have a bit of
1: armour I don't know if that would be a bit of improv what do to learn Look
0: at <laughs> <laughs> you can have some <laughs> I'm gonna find you an improv sports near you and send it uh, to you I might even book you on it as a gift
1: <laughs> I I'll, I'll just be there and be very stoked I just be- This This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture Where your words and your values and your actions all align. We help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one to one coaching this year, but that's something that you're interested in. You wanna work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode.
0: (laughs) No chance, you can't hide that. But you know what? So many of the tools that they use at the start of improv are incredibly similar to the tools we use in leadership development and leadership practices. They're really similar. Like the yes and principle of building on it and some of these other ways of getting into your body or dealing with the uncertainty or complexity. Like it, it really does tie to so some of the stuff that we work on.
1: your practice, obviously, you don't pull it out and so say there's improv technique, but do you ever pull it out in that then?
0: I mean... If I was really conscious and intentional and really thought about it, I would say, yeah, but I do it this way, this way. But I think what I've done is I've merged it into other bits of practice. And I think, I think really where it's helped me is more in how I then am with other people so I can be much freer in my gestures or my movement. with their using their movement and their gestures. So I, I worry less about how I am. So I think that's really how I've incorporated it. Cause I'm not there for myself, I'm there for them. So it really helps me in that way.
1: So are you always, for someone who's very intentional about joy and pleasure, how often do you go through moments and times when you also feel down and sad and angry and out? And how long do you allow yourself to stay in that space?
0: I do you know it's a really it's a really good question and people ask me all the time because I think they're intrinsically linked like they are you can't have pleasure and joy if you don't experience pain and sorrow because you have to have both ends of the spectrum and I I I think I feel. I sometimes think I'm rent a crier for a tv program because I will cry at almost anything on the tv program or I'll feel the pain and the sadness that other people are feeling or I will feel it myself. And if I'm angry, I'll just let myself be angry for five or ten minutes and I'll amplify the anger so I can get it out, work out what it's really telling me and then move on. So I I think it's you have to have all of these. It's just about expanding my range and shifting my focus to look on pleasure and joy more than to look at all the hurt, the pain and the suffering. But they are best buddies, really, those things, I think, in some ways. One
1: of the things that can bring a lot of pleasure and joy, but also reduce it sometimes, is parenting. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, you've got two to, to beautiful kids. Right. What's some, some of the lessons you've learned around that when it comes to when you think about pleasure, joy, and so you talked about the anger, the pain, frustration? How do you then bring that immersion up with your parenting style, parenting approach?
0: Well, I mean, I would love to say I was, like, going to be in line for parenting awards, but I don't think I ever am. I think it brings out the worst of me and brings out the best of me, like it does with most parents. But I think one of the things that's really bored me recently, especially with improv, is letting go of control. Especially because they're transitioning to teenagers and I'm like, oh my god, I think I was a real control freak around some of these aspects of parenting. Now I have to let go. And then uh, then one of my daughters is quite quiet and quite introverted and as you can see I'm probably Seriously, not that.
1: No, I couldn't, I couldn't tell. <laughs> <Playing>. <laughs> I thought you were yeah, introverted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so she's, she's really quite contemplative. so So I've had to really think that's my definition of pleasure and joy, but what's her definition of pleasure and joy? And how do I meet her where she is with that rather than expecting her to come and meet me where I am? And how do I do that? So I'm discovering just the simplicity of some of the things of just being quiet and still with her is also really pleasurable and joyful. So I I think they are the mirror to your... To your worst aspects as a human and to your best aspects as a human i mean it's not best and worst is it it's just some of the shadow sides of who you are but yeah i think my parenting style is in flux right now
1: but that's not all though i don't i think to that point it like your parenting style never stays the same because your kids are also growing so it has to be continuously growing and adapting and to your point it's bringing out the, the different the different shadow sides where it's like, okay, yeah, I showed up. Great. I can handle that. or oh, it brought this side of me a how I was like, okay, I learned that. and relearn anywhere. So it's that constant motion. and That's why I was, I would say that parents is one of those areas where it's uh it's a training ground, like you learn so much about yourself because your kid pull it out from you <laughs> on a regular, but it's. <laughs>
0: sometimes i think it'd be really nice not to be in that training (laughs) but i'm also having to learn how to parent in a different culture because i wanted my kids to experience what it was one of the reasons we moved here in thamson was i wanted my kids to experience what it felt like to be other because you know we're white and they would never truly experience it then we've got here and i'm having to learn how to parent in a different culture and what i might think is a brit is acceptable is not acceptable here in the Netherlands they're much freer so I'm having to let go so so it's also really interesting in terms of learning how to shift, I think and what is really important to me and what can I let go of
1: what's the move like been like for you personally
0: I mean sometimes I'd really not like to have that lesson <laughs> I realize that's a choice I can make it is still really confronting at times, and it's been really amazing at other times. Like, here you see a six- or seven-year-old child going down to the supermarket with their parents' car to buy stuff from the supermarket, and it's really normal. And you... And and you just the other adults will watch out for them, or, like, yeah, the, the, my daughter's cycle to school from ten, and you just have to let that kind of freedom to explore happen in a different way if you win in the UK, and playgrounds don't have school playgrounds here. The only school that has a fence around its playground is the British private school. Everything else just has its playground open. There's no fences.
1: <laughs> wow, that's, that's disgusting.
0: And, and the children don't run off. They just don't run off. So I'm like, oh my God, this is really... like. I can see your face. It really has to make you question something as someone who comes with the sort of British more fear base. <laughs> when you say okay like that, Chafei, I know there's something you're thinking. What are you thinking?
1: No, I'm I'm thinking around actually the something we talked about around what would it be like to have that freeness and that openness and that way of thinking from such a young age? Like how does that even help an individual a human being show up differently as to how we've, been, how we've grown up in the UK, for example, like, then how much of, how much has our society really confined us without really thinking about it until you go to someone like where you are right now? That's kind of what some of the, the thoughts percolated in my mind, but that's why I tend to go deep in stuff. So I'll think about that probably afterwards. <laughs> that's what I was like that's that's really interesting. I'm so I'm curious. I'm I'm curious about it. To be honest,
0: yeah, I'm still curious about it. Four and a half years in Japan, and I'm still trying to learn it.
1: <laughs> um, well, as we come to what I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed. Um, how do you define leadership?
0: Yeah, I do That's such a good question. But I guess. My first instinct is to go leadership is about modeling something that you would like others to do and to try and creating that kind of inspiration for people to want to do that and to try it I guess and then I think there were for me leadership is also about having elements for bravery or trust that you can you can try something and you can you can lead that and then creating the opportunities for others to really succeed and do their best i think would be my knee-jerk response but i think i would the moment i get off this <laughs> i'm gonna go i should have said that <laughs> well i think i think it really differs i did a leadership part with the police that i was training with the police so they have like a real command and control Thing because they're dealing with emergencies where it's life or death. Like, leadership there is about making really decisive decisions and making sure everyone knows what they're doing and getting on with it. Leadership with the stuff I'm thinking about is creating the space it's for cool. others to, to I, do I it.
1: like the knee-jerk response. It's the, it's the raw, unfiltered, unthought-about, it's a front of mind for me response to that question and that's why I like it. You know, that's that improv. You i have to go put you on the spot. You're gonna <laughs> you're lean into it. Let's see, let's see what comes up. That's my version of improv. Yeah.
0: <laughs> let's see. Uh, where is the policeman inside of me that wants to have the command and control? I I did this leadership class with the police, which was all about collaboration with someone who was from the Royal Military Police, and literally he couldn't understand me. He was like, "What are you talking about? Why would you do that? Why would you ask people their opinions?" And like, yes. Because you're only thinking about your leadership uh-huh. in one context. There are different contexts.
1: And my last question to you then be what does the ultimate what would the ultimate joy, pleasure moment be for you in this let's call it the next forty years chapter of your life? What are you working towards?
0: I mean, if I was to really have the ultimate I mean, I think I would just laugh every day and be surrounded by friends and family. And I would swim in wild water every single day. I would literally probably have a house at the bottom of the water because I would just be able to be a fish. And there would be sun. There's definitely sun. There's not rain and cold like there is right now. Yeah, so that would be it. I'd just be able to just have that. I know that I was having that whilst everyone else was having that. Uh,
1: now, this, this has this has been a pleasure. It's been insightful. Um I have laughed a lot. But one thing that I always say about Alice, anytime you're around Alice, her infectious nature is just gonna get to you. Um the willingness to live life on her own terms and to make an impact in the lives of other people it's, it's strong and um yeah so I, I appreciate you thank you for coming on oh she didn't know what I said. The conversation wasn't planned she didn't know what it was going to be like well she's like let me lean into it and it's, it's been through a couple of curveballs in there but you survived you've done a really good job so you should be proud of yourself but it's just training just training for your podcasting it's what's it's going to be like so yeah I really appreciate you thank you very much for coming on This is Everyday Leadership. See you next week. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we've got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out.
0: 10-year-old Shimona was a tomboy, actually. What? Yeah, totally. Uh,
1: I loved sports, and growing up, our parents were really great at making sure we were literally in every sports. We were busy every season, every evening. Figure skating, swimming, softball, soccer, like,
0: you name it, we did it. Tennis lessons, um, and we loved sports, like in our house, we loved baseball. And that would be like every single evening because baseball has like 160 games a season. So every evening for us as a family would be watching baseball. And I just, I love sports in general.